so when you say those who are consumed by misinformation, I'm curious just to know who you who you are yeah. who who comes who you're so. thinking. <laughs> that was Dr. Samantha Hill. And she's asking a really important question. When we talk about misinformation, we can be incredibly prone to label it as a problem that other people deal with. In and of itself, misinformation is a term that has become so entrenched in the common vernacular that we hardly bat an eye when it's mentioned. In a twist of irony, it's also incredibly misunderstood. It's also exploding across American society. Over half of American adults this year reported that they regularly stumble across misinformation. And admittedly, such self-reporting is inherently flawed. And with the advent of social media and ever-polarizing politics, such alarming statistics are only the tip of the iceberg. And all the while, in the common vernacular, it's a problem that others deal with. My name is Zacharias Negron. And I'm William Ledesma. We're undergraduate researchers at Vanderbilt University, where we primarily study Russia and Ukraine. In such a field, misinformation is all but unavoidable. In many ways, it's part and parcel of the Russian experience. As we set out to craft this investigation, we expected to mainly focus on just that, misinformation in Russia and Ukraine. But what we found was alarming and much bigger than a question of geopolitics or regional studies. Together, we embarked on a journey to answer the question Dr. Hill asked just a few moments ago. We wanted to probe who really is misinformed, where misinformation comes from, and where a misinformed society is headed. As you listen, we invite you to settle in, and perhaps to challenge your very conception of what it means to be misinformed, and our very own susceptibility to misinformation. Our search quickly brought us somewhere incredibly universal, frankly quite surprising, and at times a little uncomfortable, the human condition. Recent studies from data aggregators, U-Switch and Data Reportal, show that on average, Americans spend around six hours a day using the internet, and around five to seven hours per week using social media platforms alone. Others argue that these estimates are far too conservative. Regardless of the exact numbers, there's broad consensus that we're living in a time of unprecedented connectivity. Or are we? So around 2015, 2014, 2015, in the United States and in the UK, um, loneliness became headline news. That's Dr. Samantha Hill again. She researches political theory and philosophy and has been writing a book on loneliness over the last few years. Um, the New York Times had an article about how loneliness was tearing America apart. The Economist had an article about how loneliness was the leprosy of the 21st century. And it looked like loneliness, in a way, was becoming kind of big business. A loneliness epidemic, or that was how it was heralded. As Americans grew more and more technologically connected to one another, they were growing more and more distant in their real connections. They were also growing increasingly lonely. But despite its moments in the limelight, this growing epidemic seemed to have faded from public consciousness. And so I started digging into the literature on loneliness, and at some point, loneliness became the purview of public health experts and philosophers and people in the humanities had stopped writing about loneliness, had stopped talking about loneliness as a part of the human condition, as something that we all experience in different ways from time to time. And 
We talked to a few of those public health experts. Long before loneliness peaked the interest of more prominent social commentators, two psychiatrists at Harvard Medical School became fascinated with loneliness. It was surprising to us that in psychiatry, they didn't write about it, at least back in 96, as much as we thought they should, given that it was almost universally true of all of our patients, that they were lonely. Some of them were surrounded by people, some of them were more isolated, but almost to a person, they had some variety of loneliness that they were coping with. Dr. Jacqueline Olds, who you just heard, and her husband, Dr. Richard Schwartz, set out to document the effects loneliness was having on American society more broadly. And often uh, it would be uh, a hidden loneliness that we would only discover after working with them for a little while. Uh, people had reached the point of being comfortable coming to psychiatrists saying that I'm depressed, I'm unhappy, I'm anxious, uh, but, um, but not uh, coming in and saying I'm lonely. Hidden loneliness. It's a phenomenon not sequestered to the walls of a psychiatry office, but perhaps best found in exactly such a space. One people go to to solve some of the most pressing of their problems. In loneliness, particularly of the hidden variety, is actually much more common than we would think. In fact, as Will and I were writing the script that you're listening to right now, we came across an alarming statistic, and it struck close to home. An anonymous poll run on a popular social media platform for students at our university asked students if they ever felt lonely here. The result? In less than an hour, 88% of the students responded that they had. By the end of the day, 88% remained, even with over 1,300 students responding. You know, so if you Google loneliness, or put loneliness into a search engine, you're going to get a mil millions of results. And most of those results are going to tell you how to cure your loneliness. You're going to get a kind of checklist of suggestions. And loneliness is not something that can be cured. If we were to cure loneliness, we would be curing ourselves a part of our humanity. It's human to feel lonely sometimes. It's an expression of the fact that we exist here on this earth together. But what is this basic human experience of loneliness? You are not as connected to other people or someone else as you want to be, uh, that there's a, a longing involved. Nearly everyone we spoke with defined loneliness in the same manner. Framed as an equation, it would be disconnection plus a longing for connection. We were also constantly reminded that loneliness is not the same as isolation, or as public theologian and editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Dr. Russell Moore put it, solitude. Loneliness brings with it an isolation and a longing for community, uh, where, where solitude is a pulling back from the community for a while. Loneliness, even if it's not permanent, it feels more uh, permanent. Dr. Nicholas Christakis, a prominent sociologist and director of the Yale Human Nature Lab, makes a similar distinction. Of course, people can feel lonely even if they're in a crowd or even if they're surrounded by other people. So there's a difference between, for example, being solitary, uh, living apart from others, being friendless, 
having no social connections, which is something I study. We study social networks in my lab. And regardless of the foregoing, the, the sense of loneliness, which can even acquire a kind of existential significance um, when, when you feel apart from other human beings and you feel bereft. But this wasn't always the case. And the way that loneliness has been understood over time has radically changed. So loneliness for a long time uh, was a verb. It was actually something you did. Um, and it meant to venture far from home. Uh, the kind of first usage that we have in the English language comes from Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, and where Ophelia is sitting alone in a room and Polonius tells her, you know, read this Bible so nobody suspects a woman of sitting alone in a room not doing anything with idle hands. Um, she has a kind of quiet loneliness. And then loneliness changes in modernity. Loneliness is no longer synonymous with being alone. After all, in our hyper-connected world, it's remarkably difficult, if not impossible, to ever be truly alone. Now more than ever, humans can be lonely without being isolated, and that means all of us. I think media are uh, a double-edged sword as far as loneliness goes. Um, that uh, in some ways, uh, the ways to reach out to strangers and uh, who have things in common with you, uh, who are in distant places who you otherwise wouldn't meet, uh, uh, significantly reduces loneliness. Um, and at the same time, the uh, the, the connections uh, feel very thin. Um, they're easily broken, uh, and uh, and uh, and also the, the the view of that people put up in in social media of how wonderfully connected they are with everybody uh, uh, really does encourage the sense that oh no, I really am the only one who's lonely and left out, mm -hmm. and that makes it so much worse that with a rise in modernity, we have not just anonymous interactions with other people, but we have dehumanizing interactions with them. In other words, instead of it, instead of an old fashioned style interacting with people face to face who you knew who they were, now you have interactions with nameless bureaucrats or you have market interactions. This is often used as a critique of capitalism that you now exchange money with unknown individuals in a in a faceless sort of uh, dehumanizing economic transaction. Uh, instead of a real, you know, bartering with a friend, you're now transacting business with a stranger. Instead of asking a favor from a relative, you're now interacting with a bureaucrat at the DMV. All these factors combine to introduce the perfect cocktail for loneliness in the human condition. And as humans, we we don't like it and we're not used to it and we experience it as threatening uh and um and that that's bad for our mental and physical health so th that that's a macro trend on top of which we've imposed the uh the internet and many other trends and all of these things are contributing to um this epidemic of loneliness that you mentioned but if we are in such an epidemic is being lonely a bad thing and where can it universal parts of the human condition, love, loneliness, longing, they make us vulnerable. They make us vulnerable and they tap into our deepest desires and fears. 
And so when political propaganda speaks to that part of ourselves, it's incredibly powerful. In short, loneliness indiscriminately primes us for misinformation. Misinformation that taps into our fears and longings, even more so. We asked Dr. Olds and Dr. Schwartz if loneliness increases a common human susceptibility to misinformation. Their answer? Well, let's just say it was stark. Becoming part of uh, one of these uh, angry uh, uh, groups is actually a good antidote to loneliness. Uh, it, it does make you feel as though you belong, as though you're part of something, uh, but uh, in a very destructive way. And that's really where, where the problem is, is it's not so much the technology, it's how the technology works. So uh, most social media platforms are designed to, um, to, to prompt people to linger uh, or to share content on the basis of fear or anger uh, or just objectifying uh, other human beings. And so when that's the case, then there can be this sense that one is alleviating loneliness because I found a group of people who are as mad at something as I am, or I've uh, found somebody um, uh, th that I can uh, objectify, but it's not, it's not a real connection. In the pursuit of belonging, we've turned to the search for friendship wherever it may be found. The internet, a faithful and particularly fear-inducing ally in such a task. But what lonely individuals are met with is not salvation. Instead, misinformation and fake friendship. I wouldn't call it synthetic. I would call it, I wouldn't even call it artificial friendship. I would call it artificial social relations, maybe. You know, I mean, you're even giving it more credit than it deserves. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go on. But, no, no, you yeah. Know, I, yeah. But, you know, what, 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 I mean, you... in some ways it pisses me off that these social media companies have taken this very profound and ancient word in our languages, friendship, and applied it where it has no business. These people are not your friends. The people you're interacting with uh, in online games uh, are not almost never your actual friends. OK, the people that you have connected to on Facebook or Instagram that you think really care about you or know you are not your friends. They don't do those things. That's Christakis again. He argues that the internet has been immensely helpful in connecting isolated individuals with one another, but also pernicious in attempting to provide what only real human interaction can. People are surrounded by these, these people that these online websites would have you believe are your friends, but they are not your friends. They are acquaintances at best, or or even strangers. You know, you, you the number of real friends you have has not been transformed by the invention of this technology. I mean, one of the little anecdotes I like to give is that if you could talk to my Greek grandmother, who's no longer alive, but was born in the 19th century, and when she was a 10 or 11 year old girl in a little village in southern Greece, and you could and you had asked her how many friends did she have when she was a 10 or 11 year old girl. She would have said that I had one or two best friends and four or five of us girls hung out together. And if you talk to my daughter, Lena, who, you know, was born in 1995 and when she was 10 or 11 had a, a cell phone, an iPhone even in her pocket, uh, 
she would have given you the same answer. She had one or two best friends and there were four or five girls that hung out together. So this technology is not, there's some fundamental things about human social life that are unchanged and cannot be changed by the technology. But it isn't just these sort of interactions alone that are problematic, but what is born out of them. Well, I think that the danger when it comes to disembodied uh, forms of technology um, is that um, there can it, it is easier to hide and it also is easier to select um, to select an illusion of a community. Um, and so that's that's why, for instance, if you look at uh, shooters, um, people will school shooters or, or or others people will all often talk about loneliness and isolation and that is almost always there but that's not what drives somebody to violence it's the it's the kind of community that comes out of that loneliness so there was a there was a letter writer a psychologist who wrote a letter to the um, to the Atlantic or to the New York Times I can't remember uh, last year really taking aim at the violent loner uh, concept and said, no, that's just the, the loneliness is the first step. It's when these people become connected to a radicalized sort of uh, community, for, for lack of a better word, uh, online. That's when it becomes really dangerous. Ideology. We all have one or even multiple. It was also a core focus of Hannah Arendt's work a Holocaust survivor and one of the formative philosophers of the post-World War II era, aren't warned of the dangers of ideology's effects when coupled with loneliness. Dr. Samantha Hill is also one of Arendt's leading biographers, and most recently served as assistant director of the Hannah Arendt Center. She explains Arendt's warnings on the effects ideologies tend to have on individuals, and it matters a lot to the information landscape that we're seeing now. For her, organized loneliness is not about the feeling, the affective experience of loneliness. It is about thinking. It is about what ideology does to our thinking. So there's a great question that I always go back to that she wrote in one of her notebooks. Is there a way of thinking that is not tyrannical? And she follows that question by saying the point is to resist being subsumed in the tide at all, the tide of ideology. And of course, there she's talking about fascism, Hitlerism, and Stalinism in the origin. And so she kind of walks the reader through what she calls the recipe of ideologies. So as I said a bit earlier, you know, we all experience the world. We experience the world through our senses. Ideology, the ideology of totalitarianism, or the way that she's talking about ideologies generally, is that they divorce experience from thinking and teach people that they can no longer trust their own experiences of life. The ideology knows the true experience. And so it teaches people that there's a truer reality behind the reality in which we live.
such realities are alluring. They also easily entrap even the most careful consumers of information. But why? Because at heart, ideology and loneliness form this sort of perfect storm through which information, no matter how twisted, is luminescent. It is desirable and it is true. Such ideologies, while ethereal, define clear in and out groups, somehow both exclusive yet inviting and all the more alluring for such a combination. There's a kind of community that can be formed with what we now call negative polarization, but it's always been around. Just sort of who are, who's the out group, who are the others, and we can bond together on the basis of our, um, our distaste for or our hatred of them. I mean, that, that goes on all the time. It's just a lot easier to do uh, when you're doing it with the kind of technology that we have right now. And you have, a, you have more people who are disconnected in the first place and looking for that kind of community uh, that you can have uh, this, this sense of um, uh, someone's sacrificing children and drinking their blood and, and this vast conspiracies going on. That can start to feel credible to people if you if you have the kind of grooming essentially that we have had of imminent catastrophe um, which i think taps into a human sense longing for significance and longing to fit into a bigger sort of story you can do that with uh, conspiracy theories and and misinformation because because i'm right at the precipice of history I'm, i'm here at the big catastrophe and I can see what's going on, even though most people can't. That's, uh, that's a, a very alluring sort of drug. And such drugs, to borrow Dr. Moore's term, lull a society into quickly falling prey to something far greater than misinformation alone. Arendt answers the proverbial question, where does loneliness lead? With a harrowing destination totalitarianism because at the end of the origins of totalitarianism uh, Arendt added a conclusion in 1958 on ideology and terror uh, that she had written during the McCarthy era in America where she revised she revised the conclusion to say that the underlying condition of all totalitarian movements is loneliness loneliness is I think um, I think it's uh, pernicious and a democracy or in any society because it separates people and democracy is about connecting people maybe not people with exactly the same views but coming together and communicating with one another and finding ways forward together that was ambassador derek mitchell a veteran public servant and former ambassador to myanmar ambassador mitchell leads the national democratic institute an organization affiliated with the National Endowment for Democracy that works for democracy and accountability around the world. The problem in democracies, and you're finding that in democracies that are getting weaker or that are suffering like the United States, is that those people who feel left out, who feel they don't have a voice, who feel that they are not respected, they don't have that dignity from elites or from the government or whatever else, they're left behind, they end up turning to demagogues. They turn to people who say, I see you, 
um, or they claim that I will speak for you, I will act for you, oftentimes they won't act for them. They're just taking advantage politically. But that's where that loneliness that you call, that lack of a sense of personal dignity and connection makes a country vulnerable to uh, opportunistic politicians. And that can happen in democracies, but in a very pernicious way. Even more so with regard to information landscapes. Information is the lifeblood of democracy. You can't have a healthy democracy as well without good information upon which people can make judgments, people can debate, people can you know um, to discuss and then hopefully compromise around. So if you so really it's poison, disinformation or misinformation that that gets uh, popular uh, uh, popular acceptance is poison for democracy because you can't get good policies. Um, and a good uh, political system if the information isn't good. But we often take these sort of informational privileges for granted. One of the best things that we do in our society is we have a, a commitment to free and open expression, to free speech, right? It's in the First Amendment. And the whole point of which, the, the belief, I think the, it's the best system we have, you know, that that I can imagine all the other systems would be worse, which is we we believe we can create a marketplace of ideas and that there's a kind of coherence and power of the truth that will win out. So that um, if we allow the widest and most open possible expression, good and true ideas will rise to the top and crappy and deficient and incoherent ideas, ideas that are not in keeping with the facts of the world will rise, will fall to the bottom. and. And so the founders of our democracy thought this was the best system that we could place. The alternative would be to endow some person or group of persons the, the autocratic power to decide what gets discussed and who says what in a society. And those individual humans would clearly be subject to all the vices and weaknesses of any human and would therefore impose them on all of us. So you, this is what happens in autocratic states, right, where you have a group, the powerful elite that decides what everyone else can hear and and speak, and, and, uh, and that's a wrong. What Dr. Christakis is describing is analogous to the Russian state. But not only that, he's also describing our society's trajectory if we refuse to avert course. We are hurtling dangerously towards a society that is even more disconnected, misinformed, and autocratic in nature, if not in structure. Through our conversations, it became clear that loneliness was not merely a human experience within the U.S., but in reality, a universal one. We talked with Joshua Yaffa, who is a journalist and specialist on Russian politics. You know, we're, we're social creatures and, and, and depend on being able to kind of mirror and reference and calibrate ourselves in relation to others. And loneliness is, is not having that ability to, to sort of being into a kind of forced uh, and in some ways maybe a natural or unnatural um, autonomy uh, in which you're not able to kind of calibrate correct judge gauge your own response to the world such mirroring is only a fraction of the problem certainly um, loneliness suggests a lack of connection and a lack of trust. And I think that to be a well-informed citizen, that's like a group effort. It's, it's actually not something that one person can do 
um, on his or her own. It requires being part of a kind of network of, of, of society, really, and, and, and most important, in which you trust other members of society. Um, you trust institutions, you trust your peers, you trust your friends and neighbors, you, you trust media. You, you have to have something that you're able and kind of willing to latch onto and invest in. Uh, in terms of both individuals and institutions. Um, and if you're lonely, and, and that's a kind of, I don't know, definitional, um, sort of defines your existence in some way, you're just not going to have those bonds um, of trust. Although we live in an era of saturated information and the prominent facade of non-existent loneliness, Will and I were struck with how much loneliness and issues of trust resonate within Russian and Soviet history. And, and the reason this thesis resonates with me even more is, is for the reason you pointed out, my experience in, in Russia first and foremost, um, which is a low trust society. You don't really see strong horizontal bonds of trust, connection, solidarity, collective action in Russia for lots of overlapping reasons, certainly going back to the Soviet experience, but also the dislocation and trauma of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the kind of Hobbesian, every man for himself society that emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s um, and the serial discrediting of institutions, whether in the political sphere, media, elsewhere, um, that leave many or maybe even most contemporary Russians without a sense of um, a feeling that there there are actors in society, whether individuals or institutions, that they can look to and trust and put their faith in. And, and that creates a really fertile breeding ground for misinformation, for conspiracy theories. People end up feeling that vacuum, um, but they fill it with all manner of, um, you know, let's, let's be, you know, call a spade a spade, garbage. In the absence of interests, values, and purpose, Russians seem to become skeptical of the possibility of truth itself, that this moment in Russian politics is essentially the post-truth age. Passive, apathetic, disengaged. That's actually the most important condition that the Russian government is going for in terms of the Russian people. They're not actually trying to create 144 million Putin zombies. That would be difficult, um, probably impossible. And... Um, and the Russian state would end up failing at that effort. But what's much more possible is to create a society of, okay, maybe not 144 million, all of them, but you know, 100 million plus, let's say, people who see no purpose, virtue, value, possibility to engage or participate in the political civic sphere. And that includes through information consumption. And so the goal is to get people to disengage. It's not to tell them the earth is flat or that, you know, blue is red, but to um, become exhausted and dispirited from the very process of trying to navigate the factual world. So that's really important because uh, Putin is a television uh, ruler. Um, he is a, he uh, is television based. What he hasn't gotten wrong is the internal audience um, and the internal audience. Um, this is also the case in Ukraine. Uh, so something like the same number of people say that they're getting their um, information from uh, from the television. And um, the difference here is this. 
um, the difference between Russia's uh, information space uh, and uh, Ukrainian information space, as well as the information space in Euro America at large, is that the Russian space is monopolized. There are there is no television that is non-Kremlin um, sponsored. That was Dr. Anastasia Pilyovsky, a professor at King's College London and a specialist in Eurasian comparative studies. For her. This is nothing new. They're sponsored by by particular um, by parties with particular political lines, um, and you know express the views of a particular uh, political movement. Um, person and so on. But this is known. We know that the Guardian uh, in, in Britain uh, presses a particular line. We know that the CNN presses a particular line. We know that Fox News, you know, everybody knows that you're not looking at, you know, any even faintly sophisticated listener and viewer understands that this is the line of a particular political orientation. The results? Passivity, apathy, and disengagement with monstrous consequences for information consumption and truth itself. Well, I think that the important thing to understand is that this happens um, as part of like larger processes, right? It's not just that the information sphere in and of itself alone was um, first sort of taken over by the Kremlin, then used and manipulated for its own political purposes and, and was sort of left with like the the problem is just in the information sphere. That's not the case at all. This is that can only happen in concert with other effective takeovers of parts of the civic and political apparatus. You have to have a takeover of the judiciary, right? In fact, like the takeover of state TV um, by the Kremlin, or rather the sort of takeover of television channels, turning effectively nationalizing them and creating um, only state-run television. That was like the first step in Putin's authoritarian state building project in the early 2000s, that could only happen because the Putin state had um, control of the courts, which could be used as a political instrument to then do the state's bidding, in this case, taking over um, television. The information realm, I think, ultimately is actually a symptom more than the disease itself. In other words, disinf disinformation is, is not driving politics, though it does exist in a feedback loop that we've talked about. It's more that um, when political systems start to bend toward authoritarian impulses, they, they create almost inevitably disinformation feedback loops uh, that then strengthen and intensify with time. But I do think it's important just for purposes of our theoretical understanding to not confuse or at least to try and separate uh, cause and effect. As Americans, it can sometimes be hard to imagine the fullest reality of living under such an authoritarian regime. In some sense, we're isolated and far removed. We experience problems and issues in a somewhat different sense. Now the head of Rand Corporation's Space Enterprise Initiative, General Bruce McClintock, served as defense attaché to Russia from 2014 to 2016. Uh, first of all, I'll share kind of a personal frustration and then put it in more kind of analytical uh, research academic terms, right? So I, I spent two years in uh, Russia uh, living in Moscow. I was the U.S. defense attache from 2014 to 2016. And even at that time, it's it's more so now, but even then, Russia was not a completely closed society, to be, to be fair. But we spent time in the embassy looking at Russia 
media outlets and sources of information and how the Russian population, what their information landscape was, to go back to your terminology. And one of the things that I found very striking was unlike in the West, uh, they lived in, in a, not, again, not completely closed, but a nearly closed system where people tended in Russia tended to migrate to their comfort zone when it came to consuming information, which is most of the, the state media owned, uh, influenced, uh, sometimes controlled, but not owned media sources. A lot of television, some of the uh, social media channels and things like that had some level of state influence on them. And so in that case, it's it, the way I used to describe it. Imagine a fish swimming in an ocean and the only water they're used to is the salt water that surrounds them every single day. Russia's information landscape faces systemic repression. The mechanisms that abet such repression are actually something I spend a good deal of time researching. It starts with who I call the invisible hand of Russian politics and culture. Putin's chief um, propaganda advisor, who has been in place for a very long time, um, Surkov, um, someone called Surkov, who's been in the Kremlin for a long time, but has uh, has uh, been removed or removed himself from positions, from formal positions of, uh, in, in the Kremlin about a year before this war. He created a very clever semblance. So uh, Surkov had this policy of a, of a semblance of... Um, a liberal um, space where criticisms of the Kremlin are voiced and that where um, the educated intelligentsia in Russia has the uh, sense that uh, there is a polyvocal um, space uh, in, in inside Russia. But if you look carefully at um, TV channels uh, like uh, Dorst, the rain, or Medusa, and so on, uh, they're actually pressing chief uh, central Kremlin lines. But why? Private conversation between a colleague and Surkov, deep in the bowels of the Kremlin, sheds a new light as to why and how. Uh, a colleague of mine um, met Surkov uh, in 2008, I believe. Um, so there was a group of American political, um, sorry, not American, uh, Britain, British and American political theorists who visited the Kremlin and who met with Surkov. And Surkov was quite late to this meeting, and he opened the door with his foot, strolled in, and said, you understand what the word democracy means. And these are, you know, he's talking to a bunch of very distinguished people. Um, um, the most, you know, a bunch of very famous uh, political theorists. And he said, you know, you have come to speak to us about democracy. Democracy means the power of the people, as I understand it. It's an ancient Greek word. So, um, Surkov is very sophisticated, as you know, if you've done this research. Um, now, the people, have you seen the people on the streets? Have you walked around Moscow? This is one of our most European cities. Have you seen? These people are dirt. What Russia can do is dig stuff out of the ground. We can't do anything else. You want us to give power to these people? Are you crazy? <laughs> so Surkov's view of the Russian people is... Uh, is indeed one that is incredibly derogatory. He doesn't think that these people are capable of sound political judgment. So what he was saying to the political theorists who've come to visit was that I would like to create a good country, a good state, uh, but I simply can't trust these people to do so. The results? 
managed or quasi-democracy? Um, what he said to Western political theorists of democracy is one thing. Uh, his uh, uh, sort of faux-democratic uh, um, agenda of, of propaganda that creates an image of a multivocal society suggests that he actually is dealing with a very um, sophisticated, politically engaged and uh, a democratically inclined population. Why else would you need to present an image of a, a truly democratic uh, country if you didn't think these people wanted democracy? Now that has changed. It's very interesting that Surkov has resigned and uh, there's been a tectonic shift uh, in you know 2021 when Putin's uh, amassed his troops on the border with Ukraine and obviously he's decided that we no longer need to have the semblance of democracy. Yet Putin himself has shown his desires for a more authoritarian regime much prior to the Russo-Ukraine war. Um, I think in part because um, he tested uh, people's reactions. I mean, Putin is very, he's, he loves surveys, he loves uh, Vox Populi, he loves to see what the people think. So in a sense, he's very attuned to popular sentiments. So I think the real test uh, was uh, Putin's um, installment of himself as an um, eternal ruler of Russia. He watched, the Kremlin watched, the, he watched the reaction of the people to this. There was absolutely there was the criticism of this was absolutely marginal very faint uh, hardly existent and he realized that actually what people in russia want en masse is uh um is a is a czar is a steady um you know authoritarian uh government and, and we get this from Nevada surveys as well russians want an uh stability and a single sort of uh, source of um power on mass it is difficult to map this era of russian politics because of its nature it's opaque clouded by a mirage of misinformation managed democracy itself obscures the principles distinguished democracies and authoritarian nations. General McClintock helps bring this home for us. Connecting misinformation abroad with a fraying society at home, the information space in Russia and the US. Now, my frustration was, uh, this goes back several years now, but it's still true, arguably even worse now, is that in America, we have much more freedom. We have a lot more avenues where we can gather our information from, but for the most part, the American public uh, self-censors, right? They end up going back to their own comfort zone of information, even though there are hundreds of channels of information out there, not just television channels, but internet channels and other things. They, for the most part, the general public goes back to the same sources of information. And that turns us over to these kind of uh, academic terms for this, it, it results in cognitive bias, right? Uh, a lot of people end up going back to their same comfort channels because that's where their ideas are being reinforced. Misinformation in autocratic states like Russia provides a bleak image of what is possible, but it should also provide encouragement of where we're not yet. So how do we avert the coming storm? How do we alleviate misinformation while combating the epidemic of loneliness that slowly dips towards authoritarianism? We think that such a quest inherently requires recognizing that no one is immune from misinformation, not even excluding ourselves. After all, 
No one is immune to loneliness, nor the consumption of information writ large. We spoke with Dr. Hugo Mercier, a cognitive scientist at the Institut Jean Nicot in Paris. Uh, the, the third person effect. Um, it's an effect that is well known in kind of social psychology and, and kind of media psychology, by which people tend to assume, so especially when it comes to kind of negative messages like misinformation, people tend to believe that others will easily fall for it uh, while we won't. And, but it's, it's flipped if the messages are positive. So when it comes to like health messaging, you're going to think that other people will be resistant, whereas you will uh, believe it and, and act on it. Um, and so all of that, I mean, all of these kind of third person effects relate broadly to a tendency we have of trying to paint ourselves in a positive manner while we're trying to, to you know, devaluate others uh, unless they're people who are close to us. And so we try to, we, we tend to be kind of you know, pessimistic about uh, yeah, others in general, but quite, you know, proud of our, of our own abilities. Recognizing our common tendencies and susceptibilities is essential to generating empathy for those of us who do face misinformation somewhere along the way. As a bit of an experiment, in the days leading up to this recording, I, a fervent non-social media user, exposed myself to several Twitter doom scrolls per day. Um, these sessions, crafted to compose a form of softer misinformation, left me feeling, though surrounded by loving friends and a strong social network, quite lonely. They also showed me how small the exposure needs to be to misinformation or virulent content. While this sort of experiment is helpful in theory, it doesn't betray the sorts of misinformation that I may unknowingly consume daily. Much of the softer kind of misinformation that we often consume, even without knowing, simply confirms what we already believe or our cemented ideologies. Uh, the way we evaluate information, we pay attention to a number of cues uh, regard, re regarding the, the content of the information and regarding the source of the information. So for instance, if someone, you know, if you know that someone is knowledgeable about a topic, uh, you will tend to trust them more. If you know they have your best interest at heart, you will tend to trust them more. If they can give you arguments, you will tend to trust them more. Um, but typically, all of these cues tend to be absent in many kind of online or kind of mass media settings. And so our default reaction is just to reject anything that doesn't fit with our prior beliefs. Um, and so that's the main problem. It's, it's not so much that, like a lot of the misinformation we see spread is misinformation that is quite ineffective in the sense that it spreads only because people already agree with it. And so it doesn't really change their views at all. As a result, the most effective solutions in combating misinformation are not found in stemming information sources or isolation from the same, but in interfacing with such entrenched patterns of thinking themselves. We think the answer lies in talking to one another more and in a deeper manner. Conversation in the broadest sense is the, the only answer Dr. Schwartz here proffers a solution inspired by an article written by Dr. Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic about why the last 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. He explains that Americans on either side of any ideology or issue have essentially fired darts at their own brains through, by and large, refusing to critically engage with one another in conversation and dialogue. I think right now, in this moment, ethically, we have an obligation to one another to talk. I don't think having an absolutist 
mindset uh, is going to is going to help restore that common fabric of American society. Put differently, in order to maintain democracy, we must go analog. We have to talk. You really need this. You have to go analog for to build a democracy. Well, I think that you know, um, kind of face-to-face discussion is still extremely useful in the sense that. If you do it, um, you know, if you're of you know, good faith, you will typically come out with, even if you haven't changed your mind, you will at least come out with a better understanding of where the other person is coming from. Um, and if you're, you know, at, if you have any kind of moderate degree of empathy, uh, that's typically what will happen. Uh, and in many cases, you will change your mind or, you know, they will change their minds at least a little bit, even if not totally. So I think it works. It works better. Like personal, like face-to-face conversation works better than people realize. But talking alone may not be enough. It's how we talk with one another that matters. I think it takes discipline. I think it takes um, forming habits where you are uh, willing to change your mind. You know, one of my favorite stories. I, I forgot. It's some British wit said. You know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? What do we do? As students, this question is particularly relevant. Surrounded by students who vary from us in likeness, mindset, and all manner of beliefs, the college campus is sort of a petri dish for critical conversation. But more often than not, it's a hall of silence. Students with divergent views rarely hash them out. And if they do, it's not quite pretty. But that doesn't have to be the case. And in such alternatives there may be a future for our society and democracy writ large. You know, when you engage another person in a conversation, are you trying to win? Are you listening? Are you just thinking about what you're going to say next? Are you thinking about how to score points? Are you thinking about what scores cheap points? Cheap points get a lot of play in our society right now with social media that elicits some kind of visceral response from the other, as opposed to provoking and thinking. Dialogue hopefully provokes a person to kind of pause and think and consider. And to go into a conversation with an open mind means that you're willing to let go of what you think is true going in that you're willing to change your mind. We all experience the same set of facts, whether we readily admit it or not. As humans and common members of society, our interpretations are prone to differ. Misinformation is almost inevitable. In a time of loneliness and fraying facts, our interpretations of truth are growing more and more divergent. In the balance, our society's future itself. And we must not return to just conversing with one another but to a time of dialogue. Dialogue being that empathetic listening that admits we may be wrong. It's humility. It's Socrates knowing that he knows nothing. And Americans putting down the dart gun that will lead us nowhere but to Putin's Russia. So we think the question must be begged. Are we willing to talk? This podcast was written and produced by me, Zacharias Negron. And me, William Ledesma. It was made possible by the Buchanan family's contribution to the Jean and Alexander Hurd Libraries at Vanderbilt University. It was supported by the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy. 
and the Max Cade Center for European Studies at Vanderbilt University, with additional assistance provided by Vanderbilt Student Media. Warm thanks to our guests, Dr. Jacqueline Olds, Dr. Richard Schwartz, Dr. Russell Moore, Dr. Samantha Hill, Dr. Hugo Mercier, Ambassador Derek Mitchell, Dr. Anastasia Pilyavsky, General Bruce McClintock, Joshua Yaffa, and Dr. Nicholas Christakis.